Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, what Thomas Piketty gets wrong. So, Richard, uh, the last month or so, there's been an enormous amount of attention paid in the press to this new book, Capital in the 21st Century by the French economist Thomas Piketty. It's a volume of which I know you're critical, but before we get to the areas of disagreement, why don't you give us an idea of his basic arguments in this book and, and why it seems to have had so much resonance? The great attraction of our friend Piketty is that he managed to catch the ideal surface wave. There is throughout the United States a huge concern within inequality of wealth. It's captured when you start looking at all these figures about what the top 1% earns or manages to gather relative to everybody else. The fire is stoked because if you start looking at median incomes down below, these have for the last five years been trending downwards slowly but inexorably and so that the median income today is roughly what it was around 1996 and there's no obvious sign of return. The question then is how do you start to deal with this and Piketty basically ties into the modern progressive mood by saying there's nothing you could do to alter market institutions that will stop the inequality and he then tops it off with this plea for huge increases in progressive taxes um, with respect to income on the one hand and also with respect to wealth, not at the time of death as is typically done today but quote-unquote a one-time sort of wealth tax um, which would be very progressive with respect to the amount of money that you have. And looking around in the United States today, I think the dominant social trend starting from the president is that the questions of growth are sort of independent of anything else and that you can handle the inequality question if you have the power to do so. Now, why does he say you have to handle it? I think the explanation is he comes up with this formula which says that the growth in wealth will somehow or other always increase the increments in wages so that the ratio between these two things will be that the wealth will have in the form of capital a larger and larger fraction of the market as a whole unless something is done without it. It's an odd way to say this thing because it means in effect there's no diminishing marginal returns with respect to gains on wealth and there's no real examination of how wealth in fact is created on by looking at market institutions on venture capital and similar things. But if you have a kind of Marxist-like inevitability argument, then it's the will of the people that has to stand up against it. So what he does is he manages to unite the concern with egalitarianism on the one hand with a form of democratic triumphalism on the other. Now, the assumption of Piketty's book, which he seems to regard as self-evident, doesn't make much of an effort to justify it, is that income inequality is in itself – inherently bad. I know you don't accept that premise. Why not? Well, look, the question about uh, income leveling, which is the opposite side of that, uh, can go one of two ways. Uh, one of the things you can do is you could level down so that the rich have less and the poor keep the same amount. The gap is now smaller. But the society turns out to be smaller, which means that it has fewer provisions available for defense and for other public goods. Uh, that seems to me to be a huge mistake because the usual welfare measure is that of Pareto superiority or Pareto improvements in which the hope is that if you could make somebody better off and make nobody worse off, generally you say that's fine. And of course, if you could find a way to make the rich richer without making the poor poorer, that would do it. And if you could find a way to make the poor richer without the rich making coming 
poor, that would do it as well. And in general, what you try to look for in, in organizing society is to keep what I call to the tradition of redistribution last. What you first want to do is to open up the channels of commerce so as to increase growth through voluntary exchange in the form of labor on the one hand and the investment of physical and human capital on the other. Then once you manage to raise the tide for all ships, you'll look around and see if there's any form of redistribution that's necessary to pick up those who are behind. If, in fact, you have a prosperous society, a lot of that stuff will be done through the private sector as it was during the rising tide of wealth in the late 19th century uh, through voluntary formation of hospitals, universities, and so forth, which was a very, very big deal at the height of laissez-faire and to some extent got crowded out by the progressive tradition that took place between the wars and has continued unabated since that particular time. Uh, So he has the wrong measure as far as I'm concerned because his position in effect becomes one of envious spite. It's a good thing to make the rich poorer even if you don't make the poor richer seems to be what he's saying and he just takes moral offense at the huge aggregation of wealth by everybody else. I mean that top 1%. My view about it is exactly the opposite. There's no way they could consume all that wealth no matter how rich and how gluttonous they turn out to be which means we now have a pool of uh, investment capital available to make the world a better place for everybody else. Speaking of taking the wrong measure, one of the issues that you pointed out at Finding Ideas is that Piketty is maybe too reductionist in looking at social welfare purely through the prism of, of money. And You wrote – quote you here. Theoretically, measures of wealth are convenient ways to attack the inequality of individual well-being. Though they are relevant to that question, they are far from the only measure of individual well-being. Okay, what what else should we be looking at? What isn't Piketty looking at? Well, if you start looking at a large number of left-wing economists, what they constantly do is they refer to happiness indices and they indicate that these things are only loosely quali- you know, correlated with wealth. It's very difficult to measure happiness, but one thing it's not too difficult to measure is life longevity. And if you're trying to figure out what the great achievement this has been over the last 115 years, it's been improvement in that dimension. Uh, just to give you kind of United States numbers, which are replicated more or less throughout much of Western Europe, uh, life expectancy for the median male and female from 1900 today has gone up by about 30 years. Uh, life expectancy for the average minority person, the average Negro, the average African American um, has gone up 40 years. The gap between white and black today is around four years as opposed to 17 years, uh, which is roughly what it was or 16 years back in 1900. Now, the thing to understand about improvements in life expectancy is that they're very heavily correlated with happiness and in effect there is no way that these can be concentrated in the top 1% of the population. It's not as though 1% of the people live for 5,000 years and everybody else just hasn't moved an inch uh, from what it was. So through the creation of various kinds of public goods, whether they be uh, pollution control facilities, new sewage lines and pipes, or the creation of of, of vaccines and other medicines that can deal with infection or uh, various kinds of epidemics, uh, you create necessarily public goods that everybody shares in. And from the point of view of redistribution, you can't tax utility. You can only tax money. Uh, so that happily, I'm prepared to say, the rich have borne most of the cost of creating these public goods because they have most of the wealth which is needed for their creation. And to sort of look at just the income figures without looking at these hedonic measures of human welfare is an extremely blinkered way of understanding the world. I know you've said that another area where you think that Piketty's understanding falls short is his lack of recognition of the the mobility of capital. Explain that. 
Well, um, one of the things that was pointed out by Tyler Cowen in his very nice review of the Piketty book is that what Piketty does is he treats capital as a lump, a homogenous mass of stuff. Now, it just doesn't work that particular way. Piketty is right insofar as he says that the rentier, that is uh, the retired person who's living off of investment income, uh, can guarantee a steady rate of return by a diverse portfolio, although one starts to look at the last 10 years and you realize that that diverse portfolio has very little interest on its bonds and basically relatively modest levels of capital appreciation, even that the stock market today at its all-time high, it's only up by about 15% from what it was in 2007, which is a little bit more than inflation. So this diversification strategy is uh, low risk, but on the other hand, it's also low return. It's also a strategy that cannot be universalized. Uh, You don't want to put people who clip coupons in the same category as venture capitalists who have a combination of labor on the one hand and capital on the other to take themselves into very high-risk ventures. Indeed, if you start looking at the really rich kinds of people coming out of this, like Mark Zuckerberg and so forth, what you discover is, you know, they begin in a dorm room somewhere, and now they're worth $28 billion. You can decide whether it's their capital that got them to that position or whether or not it's their labor. In truth, it's both. So what you need in order for these markets to be vibrant is a way to make sure that people who get into this kind of wealth will be able to keep some fraction of it. Otherwise, the incentive to invest in these kinds of high-risk endeavors will, in fact, not take place. What's useful to do this is to recall what Gary Becker wrote about some 50 years ago when he talked about human capital. He meant it quite literally. You make investments in your skills and they pay out a return over your useful life uh, so that you use the same thing for equipment that you use for people and vice versa. Once you take that model, it becomes very clear that today's labor becomes tomorrow's capital and it's very difficult to disentangle the two of them. And what you want to do is to give as people in this business commonly understand some kind of an exit strategy for the high-risk capitalists. So they can go public with an IPO, an initial public offering or something of the sort, get the money out and put it into another high-risk venture, and then when it matures, sell it off to other people. So you need to have a securities and exchange market, which essentially allows for the orderly turnover of capital, which means, in effect, that you really have to understand the way in which these capital markets work. And what Piketty does when he lumps everything together is to forget the enormous variations in the type of capital that we actually kind of observe and the peculiar interactive ways in which they act one to another. And put it in another way, if you want to protect the retirement income of ordinary people who don't have the skills to make high-risk investment, one of the ways to do it is to allow them to get a diversified fund, which depends upon prices set by others. But the theory of the efficient markets means that everybody cannot just be a price taker. There's somebody who has to go out there and set those prices and they have to put in labor and they have to get a higher rate of return. So it's really quite striking to see how he doesn't understand the interpenetration of capital or labor or in fact the way in which capital cycles over the life of any particular venture. Richard, one of Piketty's criticisms here is really more political than economic. He argues that you get these large concentrations of wealth and then that essentially allows the rich to buy disproportionate access to the political system. And this is a concern that we've seen play out publicly over the past few years. We've had a couple of major Supreme Court cases on campaign finance. At the moment, there's a lot of concern, especially on the political left, about wealthy political donors like the Koch brothers. Do you share his concern that these concentrations of wealth can lead to government sort of by the rich for the rich? 
Well, I, I do to the extent that George Soros is the guy who's running the show, but he has a mere twenty-three billion as opposed to what the Koch brothers have about eighty billion. But therein lies the point: is that it turns out that there's no unity of position with respect to of the very rich as to what they think. In fact, if you start at the top of the list with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett um, and Soros, you know all of these guys in or close to the top ten, they're probably left to center in the way in which they think about these things. The Koch brothers are very substantial. They also give a a huge amount of science into artistic endeavors and so forth. They're on the other side of this line. You take somebody like this guy, Tom Spire, I think is his name, who's an anti-Keystone pipeline guy. He's a mere $1.6 billion. But, you know, if he's willing to put 30 or $40 million into blocking a pipeline, all of a sudden you've got a very high expression of the left-wing voice. So my view is there's cacophony amongst wealth and it cancels one another out. Uh, the second point I think that one has to note is the question is, what are you trying to achieve? I would certainly oppose anybody who is rich who says, you know what I have to do is to get more tax breaks, by which I mean taxation, which gives me uh, less e taxable income than I have economic income. I'm very nervous about doing that in various kinds of settings. But that's not what the battle is today. The battle today is just how much we are going to tax the rich relative to their production. So if the rich have, let us say, 20% of the wealth in various forms, and they're paying 40% of the cost of upkeep of a nation, uh, they're not siphoning off welfare from, from wealth from anybody else. It's the other people who are doing it from them. And unlike the older generations in which this wealth went into the creation of public goods like sewers and roads and so forth, most of this stuff turns out to be transfer payments, which has very bad incentive effects on both sides of the equilibrium. People will now try to lobby in order to gain these tax subsidies and people will lobby on the other side to resist them and there's no useful production that comes out of these kinds of activities. So what you really need to do is to have a stable system of property rights at the center level uh, so that the political forces of faction on either side can't take this and the great tragedy of the United States Supreme Court and our current judicial philosophy is that property rights, except perhaps for those of possession, are so fluid and weak that it really pays to lobby because if you can deny a building permit to the guy across the street, you could wipe him out 80% of the time and maybe increase your own wealth by 50% of the time. And if there are no constitutional limitations on those ability to impose restrictions on competitors, or what you do is you get the Masonian di dynamic of factions. That's what I worry about. And I think what Piketty confuses is wealth on the one hand uh, with political instability because of weak property rights on the other. The latter is the point that we should worry about. And of course, his old program is one of complete destabilization of wealth by the imposition of various kinds of taxes, of which the wealth tax is the most deadly, because many forms of wealth that you have are not even instantly realizable um, in terms of cash. You know, somebody's a partner in an accounting law firm, medical practice, and so forth. They may have three or four million dollars in wealth tied up, uh, but they can't afford to pay a tax on that because the only way that they will realize that is through future labor and they don't have anything which is marketable at the time that you're going to impose the tax. So you could create all sorts of chaos with respect to his program. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thanks to you, our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.